Whoa. No, th- thanks, Todd. I, I've got a mic. I'm good. I'm good. Well, dangerous world we live in. Hey, hi, everybody. Thank you for joining us today. Um, I have some, I want to begin by sharing with you some good news and some bad news. So I don't know what you want to hear first. Okay, I'll give you the bad news first. The bad news is that today marks the seventh weekend that we haven't been able to meet together as a church. I mean, it's hard to believe it's been seven weeks. The last time we met together as a church was March, the weekend of March 6th and 7th. Uh, that was nearly two months ago, and I think you'd all agree with me, that's bad news. Well, the good news is that even though we haven't been able to meet together as a church, our church is still growing. In fact, based on our metrics, we estimate that the number of people who are watching our services online is double what our average weekend attendance was two months ago. So that's good news. And that's not just our church, but it's true of a lot of other churches. According to blogger and pastor Kerry Newhoff, church growth has spiked by 300% in just the last month. This was confirmed by Google, which tracks what people search for. Google found searches for prayer, for God, for online churches, went through the roof in March and April. Here's a graph that they came up with. You want to take a look at these? These are numbers for the, the U.S., And then take a look at the second graph. It covers uh, Google searches for the entire world. And as you can see, there is a staggering jump. uh, And interest in spiritual things has surged, not just here in the U.S., but worldwide since the pandemic began. The heightened interest in religion was also reported on by Fox News in a story titled, Online Ministries See Record Number of People Turn to Jesus Amid Pandemic. And so... Of course, this is good news as well, and it kind of begs the question, so what's going on here? Uh, is there a revival going on here? And if so, what, what is the revival? What, what does it look like? Um, how does it happen? And so these are just a few of the questions that I want to explore uh, into today's message. Uh, such an important topic, especially during these times, revival. So grab a Bible, grab a Bible. Uh, Get something to write on, get something to write with, or you can follow along on your South Bay Community Church app. Let me open up our time in a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Okay, let's pray. Well, Father, thank you so much for uh, all that you're doing. It's hard to believe that it's been nearly two months now that we haven't been able to meet as a church. But Father, we're, we're so thankful for technology, and we're so thankful for the ability to still reach people. In fact, Lord, we are... Um, we are in awe of you that you've allowed us to reach even more people than we were reaching two months ago. And uh, thank you, God, for every person out there who's listening and who's watching. And Father God, you know, this, although this may seem a little bit mechanical because we're doing all this online, I pray that in every way, your Holy Spirit would be right there um, in someone's office, um, in someone's living room, wherever they're watching, whether it's on their um, mobile device or whether it's on an iPad or a laptop or desktop or even on the TV screen. I pray that you would speak very clearly today. God, I beg you, God, to just get a hold of each and every one of us. And I pray that 
for each of the services that are viewed, no matter when it's viewed. God, I ask you to speak. I ask your Holy Spirit just to speak volumes into our lives. So thank you, Father. Thanks for our time together today. Thanks for what you're continuing to do uh, in and through the church. God, we commit this time to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have been a Christian for any length of time, you've probably heard of churches uh, hosting revival meetings or crusades going back maybe 150 years or more. Here's a, a poster advertising a revival. And uh, no, I did not get saved at this revival. And there are churches that continue to hold revival meetings even today. Here are two more advertisements of revivals more recent in recent years. And as well-intentioned as the organizers of these events may be, um, I want to make something very, very clear, first of all. And that is, a revival is not an event. A revival is not something you organize and you plan for and that you hold over several days or even over several weeks. I like this definition that the Reverend Don Attenborough came up with regarding revival. Here's what he said. Revival is when God reveals himself in awesome holiness and irresistible power. It is when God reveals himself in awesome holiness and irresistible power. Pastor Stephen Cole uh, said something similar uh, which he posted on Bible.org. He wrote, true revival is when the living God sovereignly and powerfully breaks into human history with the good news of his salvation. So it is when God, the living God, sovereignly breaks in to human history. All right, so revival is when God reveals himself. It is when he breaks into human history. In other words, revival is something that God does. All right, you can write this one down. Revival is the sovereign work of God. That's the first thing I want you to know about revival. It is the sovereign work of God. It is not a planned event. It is not an organized event. It is not anything that can be manufactured. Now, before we read the first two verses here from, from Psalm 80, I want you to take a look at this map. Take a look at this map. Now, around 930 BC, a civil war engulfed the nation of Israel, and the country was split in two. The northern half of the country, commonly referred to as the Northern Kingdom, retained the name Israel, as you can see on this map, and its capital was Samaria, which is not shown on this map. The southern half of the country took on the name Judah, and Jerusalem was its capital. Now, FYI, the northern kingdom of Israel was spiritually bankrupt because its national religion was not God, but it was idol worship. They worshipped all kinds of gods, and one of the hotbeds of their idolatry was a city called Dan, which you see on this map. It's in the northern part of Israel there. And I think I mentioned to you in a previous message that we had a chance to visit Dan when we went to Israel last November. And some of the altars that they erected 2,900 years ago to their gods were still standing. Now, in the year 722 BC, that would have been 200 years or so after the nation of Israel split in two, the northern kingdom of Israel was wiped out by the Assyrian army, just completely wiped out. God had had enough of their idolatry, so in an act of divine judgment, he sent in the Assyrian army to wipe out Israel. Bible scholars believe that the writer of Psalm chapter 80 witnessed the downfall of Israel firsthand and fearing that the same thing would happen to them, to Judah, he, 
wrote Psalm chapter 80. And included in this chapter were a couple of prayers in which he asked God to bring about a revival in the nation of Judah so that the same thing that happened to Israel wouldn't happen to them. Here is Psalm 80, verse 3, in the Passion Translation. Here's what he wrote. Revive us, O God. Let your beaming face shine upon us with the sunrise rays, rays of glory, and then nothing will be able to stop us. And then in Psalm 80, verse 18, he wrote, Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us, and we will call on your name. All right, so the psalmist, the one who wrote Psalm 80, who just witnessed what God did to Israel, didn't want the same thing to happen to Judah. So in desperation, he prayed that a revival would break out uh, and God's beaming face would shine down upon the people of Judah. All right, so that's what we see here. And, and so you can write this one down. We notice, can't help but notice that revival is born out of prayer. He prayed to God and asked for revival to come. Second thing I want you to know, revival is born of prayer. We need to pray for revival. Mike Gore, who is the CEO of an organization called Open Doors Australia, which serves persecuted Christians, recounted in a recent blog about how revival broke out in China. In 1949, he estimates that there were one million Christians in China, and they faced severe persecution. Believers, pastors were imprisoned and killed, Bibles were burned, yet 30 years later in 1979, that number from one million swelled to more than 10 million Christians. 10 million Christians in, in China in 30 years. And before long, that number doubled to 20 million, even though the persecution persisted. Here's how revival broke out in China, according to, to Mike Gore. He wrote, at the time, reports from China said that there was one thing that stood out. The amount of time Chinese believers would spend in prayer. But they weren't praying that the persecution would end. They were praying for their country. They were praying that revival would come to China. Get this. The people didn't pray for the persecution to end. They prayed that God would bring a revival. And he did. And this is truly remarkable. One of the greatest revivals in all of human history began with prayer. Today, it is estimated that there may be more than 100 million Christians in China. Gore concluded his blog by recounting this story. I'll put it up here for you. He wrote, I remember sitting with a Chinese believer and asking if I could pray for him. And he said, we look at the Australian church as a prophetic example of what happens when faith becomes free. The value of Jesus drops. I want you to pray that Persecution never leaves China. I then asked him to pray for me, and he simply said, I pray that you will be persecuted. Isn't that amazing? See, not only is revival born of prayer, but it can arise out of persecution and hardship, and even in the bleakest of times. We see this here in China. We see this in the early church. Take a look at Acts chapter 4. Acts 4, starting in verse 1, says, The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John, who were two of Jesus' disciples or apostles. And while they were speaking to the people, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. 
And they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. So here you have a situation where Peter and John are preaching the gospel, and then they're thrown into jail. And you would think that that would be the end of them. Yet what happened was revival broke out. And thousands of people came to know Christ. You see, revival can break out even in the midst of a crisis. And that's the third thing I want you to know about revival, and that is it can come in a crisis. It can come out of a crisis. It can break out in times of war and persecution, even during a global pandemic. Now, you may be interested to know that the Bible tells us that one day there will be a revival unlike anything the world has ever seen. Because it will break out, and it will even break out during a time of unprecedented crisis. It will take place during the Great Tribulation period, which will be the darkest time in all of human history. I liken, it, I liken the Great Tribulation to the fear factor during which, uh, you know, during the Great Tribulation period, COVID-19 on steroids times 10,000 times 10,000. That's, that's how much fear there will be during the Great Tribulation and in the midst of all, in the midst of that, a revival will break out. And here's what will trigger the revival according to the prophet Joel. Joel 2.28 says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. God said, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. If you want to get a pen and underline that in your Bible, do that. I will pour out my spirit. First of all, who initiates revival? Well, God does. I will pour out my spirit. It is the sovereign work of God. Second, it says here, he, and the Hebrew word for pour out is the word shafak, and it means to dump or to gush. God will literally dump his spirit on mankind. He will literally gush his spirit on mankind, and it will, and, and it will ignite a worldwide revival. Here's how Revelation 7 describes the outcome of that revival. Take a look at Revelation 7 and verse 9 and 10. And it says here, after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, a great multitude from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And jump down to verse 13. And then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. You see, out of the great tribulation, out of this darkest time in all of human history, there will be a great revival. And out of that revival, millions will come. Millions will be saved. And they will come from every nation, every tongue, every tribe, every people, every language. And it goes to show you that in this one final, rebel, one final uh, revival shows that God, when God wants a revival, he will send it and it will break out regardless of our circumstances. I don't know if I ever told you this or not, but a few years ago, uh, um, we got home from church and we found our little boy on the floor unresponsive. His breathing was shallow, uh, he was listless, his body was completely limp. It was scary. This is our little boy right here. His name is Carmel. We immediately picked him up and rushed him to the vet. 
And after running a few tests, they referred us to the animal hospital here right next door to our church. And after a few more tests, they wanted to keep them over. Uh, but we didn't let them because it was so expensive. And, and he was diagnosed with Addison's disease, um, which means he doesn't produce enough cortisol to fight off stress. And so once he got some cortisol into his system, it revived him and he was fine. Thank God he was fine. And we still have to give him cortisol every day. And without it, without it, he becomes weak and lethargic and listless. In some ways, Addison's disease sounds like something the church is susceptible to because it too can become weak and lethargic and listless. Here's what I mean. In 1 Timothy 3, chapter 15, the Apostle Paul said that the church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Here, here it is. I'll just put it up here for you. It is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Yet in recent years, it's been anything but, but as churches have strayed away from upholding the truth of the word of God in regards to so many issues. I mean, today, there are many pastors out there who teach a prosperity gospel, which claims that God promises you to be healthy and wealthy, and that sometimes they'll even say, send me money so that they can buy the next size up Gulfstream jet. Today, many pastors have the audacity to teach evolution. Many have jumped on the gay marriage bandwagon. You can marry whoever you want, even someone of the same gender. Many say that it's okay for you to live together even before you're married. You can get an abortion. Others teach that there are many ways to heaven, that Jesus is not the only way, and that God is a she, and there is no hell, and the Bible is full of contradictions and errors. There are so many issues like these where the church has abandoned the truth for a lie, and it's as if America, or the church rather, has Addison's disease, and it is prone to weakness and, and lethargy and listlessness. Hence, Pastor John Piper said this. He said, quote, the term revival in its most biblical sense has meant a sovereign work of God in which the whole region of many churches, many Christians, has been lifted out of spiritual indifference and worldliness into conviction of sin. Earnest desires for more of Christ and his word, boldness and witness, purity of life, lots of conversions, joyful worship, and a renewed commitment to missions. In other words, what he was saying was revival begins in the church. It begins with us. Pastor Tony Evans added, revival is the restoration of the spiritual life of God's people and a return to the abundant life God intended for his followers. And thus, revival is like a shot of cortisol for a weak and lethargic and listless church. And that's why revival begins in the church. It must start in the church. And since we are the church, it begins with us. It begins with you and, and with me. So let me say this as, in as many ways as I, I can. God wants his church to be sold out to him. He doesn't want it to be lethargic and listless and lifeless and weak. He wants you to be on fire for Christ. He wants you to passionately love Jesus with all your heart, soul, and mind. He wants you to be hot, not cold, not lukewarm. He wants you to pulsate with life and be vibrant and thrive. He wants you to be totally surrendered to Christ and he wants you to uphold the truth of the word of God. 
the great Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, who once wrote the definitive book on, on revival, said this. He said, revival above anything else is a glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is the restoration of him to the center of the life of the church. Revival is the restoration of Christ to the center of your life and of my life and of the church. So that's the fourth thing I want you to know about revival, and that is it is for the church. Revival is for the church. We need revival. And again, since we are the church, that means we need revival. I need revival, and you need revival. Revival is for us, restoring Christ to his rightful place in our lives. But here's the dilemma. Going back to what that Chinese believer told Mike Gore of Open Doors Australia, when faith becomes free, the value of Jesus drops. Remember that? That's the problem. That's the dilemma. See, over time, the value of Jesus can drop. You start hanging out with the wrong crowd, and the value of Jesus can drop. Work starts to get busy. You get a promotion. You, you're given more responsibilities and more assignments, and the value of Jesus can drop. You meet someone. You can't get her out of your mind. All you want to do is spend time with him, and, and the value of Jesus can drop. You get married, and you have kids, and you're busy. You're super busy, and you're tired all the time, and the value of Jesus can drop. It's boys' night out, so you go to the strip club, and the value of Jesus drops like a rock. You have a few beers, and you get buzzed, and you go to that porn site, and the value of Jesus plummets. Or maybe God has blessed you. Maybe you've got everything a man could ever want. You've got money. You've got a beautiful family. You've got a gorgeous home. You've got a fancy car to drive, and the value of Jesus can drop because you don't really need him. Or maybe life is hard, like it is now. It's really hard. And maybe you're not getting along with your spouse, or maybe your kids are driving you crazy, getting on your nerves, or maybe your parents are annoying you. Maybe you just lost your job. Maybe you're sick. Maybe you just lost a loved one, and you're at your wit's ends, and you wonder where God is, and you wonder why he did this to you, and you're tempted to drop Jesus. It's so easy for the value of Jesus to drop and that's because the devil is in the drop Jesus business. He's in the drop Jesus business, and after you decide to get serious about him, he'll attack you and attack you and attack you to make your faith weak and lethargic and listless. He'll do whatever it takes to get you to drop Jesus. And he won't quit until you either dropped it or you dropped Jesus. And that's why we all need personal revival like a shot of cortisol. You know, I don't like to admit this, but... I'm a crier. Uh, I'm easily moved to tears. And if you've been here, you've probably seen that. And I noticed recently that the older I get, the more I cry. And I don't like to admit that because we live in a culture uh, that values, prizes, strength, and self-control. And, but recently, I've been moved to tears more than it seems like I ever have. I moved to tears when I sing worship songs late at night after everyone is in bed. A few weeks ago, I watched a movie called Taking Chance about a Marine who escorts the body of another, a fellow Marine home for burial after he was killed in action. 
I watched it three times in three nights, and, and every time I watched it, I didn't cry. I bawled. Lately, I've been thinking about the weekend when we can finally all meet back together. And um, I know that when I see all of your faces, I think I'm going to lose it. In fact, just thinking about that time, that weekend, just thinking about seeing all of you again puts a lump in my throat. And as often as I am moved to tears, the one thing that hasn't moved me to tears is my sin. I think that when it comes to sin, most people, including me, don't always flee from it. We feed it. Instead of hating it, we love it. Instead of running from it, we run to it. Instead of despising it, we desire it. And there can never be revival in our hearts if that's our default when it comes to sin. See, the first thing that's got to happen for, re- for real revival to break out is that we've got to come to a place where we absolutely hate sin, where we are broken over it. It begins with a realization of what sin is and what it does and, and how much God despises it and how ugly it is and how destructive it is and how offensive it is to God. That's the fifth, fifth thing I want you to know about revival and that is that it is characterized by brokenness over sin. Brokenness over sin is, is the prophet Isaiah exclaiming, woe to me, woe to me for I'm a man of unclean lips. I am lost, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Brokenness is David crying out in Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Brokenness is Simon Peter falling on his knees before Jesus and saying to him, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Depart from me. Have you ever said those kinds of things to the Lord because of the realization that you were a sinner? Have you ever cried out over your sin? This is where I'm convinced this is where God wants us to be. I'm convinced this is what God wants us to do. He wants us to grieve and to mourn over our own sin. He wants us to be broken over our own sin. He wants us to hate and despise sin. That's the first characteristic of true revival. You know, back in the 17th century, there were a group of Christians known as the Puritans. And uh, they came out of the Church of England, and they believed that the, their church, the Church of England, they believed that their church was too closely aligned with the Roman Catholic Church. And so they wanted their church, the Church of England, to, to eliminate many of the ceremonies and practices and liturgy and even doctrine that was connected with Catholicism because they, they said it wasn't rooted in the Bible. So Puritan preachers began to call on the Church of England to repent. You know, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia, and it means a change of mind, metanoia, a change of mind. In the New Testament, it refers to turning from sin, Turn from sin. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for repentance is shuv, and it means to turn back. And thus, the Puritans called on the Church of England to change their minds and turn back and repent because of their religious practices. They were not in line with the Bible. And as you can imagine, these pastors calling 
the church to repent did not go over very well, and, and the Church of England pushed back. Finally, on August the 24th, 1662, the church took bold and swift action against the Puritans. They did so by expelling 2,000 faithful preachers. They stripped them of their ordination. They took away their churches. And the move, their action came to be known as the great ejection. The great ejection. And literally overnight, the word of God in England, all throughout England, was silenced. And these 2,000 preachers were muzzled. No longer to preach again. And the repercussions were staggering, to say the least. Some say it was the greatest tragedy ever to befall England. One British pastor and author named Ian Murray wrote, after the silencing of the 2000 came an age of rationalism, of coldness in the pulpit and indifference in the pew, an age of skepticism and worldliness that went far to reducing national Christianity to a mere parody of Christianity. A couple hundred years after the great rejection, Pastor and author J.B. Marsden wrote, as proof of God's displeasure over the great ejection, a long, unbroken course of disasters began in England. Within five years, London was laid waste twice. In fact, three years, three years after the great ejection, great ejection took place in 1662. Three years later, in 1665, London was struck with what is known as the Great Plague that was spread by fleas that infested rats. And when the plague was finally contained a year later, 100,000 people were dead. That was one quarter of London's population because of a plague. A year later after that, a massive fire swept through London, incinerating 70,000 homes and 90 churches and killing many. Multiple historians, including Marsden, saw this as God's, God's divine judgment because of the great ejection. Whether or not it was, one thing is for certain. There are severe consequences when the church strays and when the church becomes weak and lethargic and listless. And that's why the second characteristic of revival is repentance. Revival is characterized by repentance. All throughout scripture, we are called on to repent of our sins and turn back to God. Jesus said in Luke 5, 32, I have, come, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, it begins with Jesus calling on five of the seven churches, five of the seven churches to repent, calls on the churches to repent. The Apostle Paul, when he preached the sermon on Mars Hill, he concluded it by saying this in Acts 17. The times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Metanoia. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In verse 31, will you underline, or verse 30, will you underline, he commands all people everywhere to repent. God wants, no, he doesn't want, God commands that we all repent and turn from our sins. You see, it isn't sufficient, it isn't good enough simply to recite the sinner's prayer and think that's gonna take you into heaven. If your faith is genuine, if your faith is real, 
then there must be repentance. There must be a change. There must be a turnaround in the way that you live. And church, I can't think of a better time, a more important time than right now than to repent of our sins. I believe this is the greatest need of the hour, the greatest need of this hour, and that is to repent. I like, and I like the reason Paul cited for why we should repent. If you look at Acts 17, 31 again, he said, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. He has fixed a day when the world will be judged in righteousness. You see, judgment day is coming. That's what Paul said. Judgment day is coming. One day we will all stand before our maker and we will have to give an account of our lives to him. Romans 14, 10, Paul wrote, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. In verse 12, jump down to verse 12. He says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Judgment day is coming. And that's why... We need to repent. We need to get right with God. We need to clean up our act. Let me close with this. Years ago, one of our friends here at church gave us a very special Christmas present. The gift uh, was that on the day of our choosing, one of her friends would come over to our house and spend the day cleaning it. She's going to clean our house. We couldn't believe it. And we were so excited and we thought, really? I mean, someone's going to come and clean our house? And she was going to wash everything down and vacuum and dust and scrub and everything. You know, this was our friend's Christmas gift to us. So Cheryl, my wife Cheryl, finally chose a date. I don't remember what date exactly. Let's say it was Thursday. And so she said, this person's going to come over on Thursday and clean our house. And so on Tuesday, Cheryl said, okay, let's start cleaning the house. I go, well, what do you mean, let's start cleaning the house? I mean, that's why she's, this lady's coming over on Thursday. She's going to come and clean our house. She says, we can't let her in our house like this. We've got to clean the house first. Well, what do you mean? That's de- that defeats the purpose, you know? So she said, no, we've got to clean the house. We can't let her in our house looking like this. And so we spent the next two days, all day Tuesday and all day Wednesday, cleaning the house so that someone can come over and clean the house. One day, Jesus is going to return. And it could be very soon. And I don't know about you, but when he shows up, I don't want him to find a dirty house. I don't want him to find all this junk and all this sin and all this wickedness in my heart. I really don't. And that's why repentance is so important. For that matter, that's why revival is so crucial. So that when he comes, he doesn't find us weak and lethargic and listless. I don't know if what we're seeing today is an actual revival. I don't know that. I hope it is. I hope it's a real revival. But here's the thing. Revival isn't just about getting thousands of people to say a prayer. It's about getting people, starting with us, to be broken over our sin and then repenting of it. That's a real revival. And church, I would ask you, I would ask you whether or not God has broken your heart over sin. And if not, ask God to break your heart over sin. And then God, ask God to, to help you to repent. I don't know what kind of sins you struggle with. 
Maybe you're sleeping with someone who isn't your husband or your wife. Maybe you're addicted to pornography. or Maybe your life is all about you. It, you're selfish. It's all get out. Maybe you're prideful and you go about living like you're entitled to everything. Maybe you're greedy. Maybe you're a liar or a cheat. Maybe you're a gossip or maybe you're highly critical. Complain about everything and criticize everyone. Maybe you're bitter and resentful. Resentful. Maybe you're a bigot. Maybe you're prejudiced. Maybe you're a hater. Maybe you're angry. You're always angry at your spouse. You're always angry at your kids. You're always angry at your boss. Maybe you're always angry at your mom or your dad. You got a short fuse and you're always blowing up. Maybe you're self-indulgent and maybe you eat too much or you drink too much or you do drugs or you get high on pot. Whatever it is, whatever it is, Ask God to get you to a place where you will grieve over it and mourn over it and then repent of it. Clean your house. Clean your heart. Get right with God because judgment day is coming. And if you will, if you will, there will be revival. If not in the world, in your heart. And that's where it begins. Let's close our time in prayer. As you bow your heads, wherever you're at, wherever you're watching or listening from, I want to ask all of you just to bow your heads. And I want to ask you a serious question. Do you grieve over sin? Or do you indulge yourself in it? Have you repented of your sins? Is your house clean? If Jesus showed up today, would you feel comfortable about inviting him into your your heart? Then let today be the day. I don't want to just lead you in a prayer. And I I certainly don't want you to think that if you simply say a prayer, you're in, you're good. And then you can go on and do whatever you want to do. You can't. If your faith is genuine and heartfelt, then you will want to grieve over your sin and you will want to repent of it and change. Right now, wherever you're at, will you say this to him? Dear God, please forgive me for I am a sinner and I have offended you and my sin is ever before you and I know that I've broken your heart. Lord, forgive me Thank you for allowing your son to die on a cross for my sins. And Father, now give me the power of your Holy Spirit to repent and to change. Help me not to be the same person that I was before. Lord, I can't change without you. I need your help. Help me to repent. Help me to forsake my sin. Help me to turn away from it. Help me to stop whatever it is that I'm doing that offends you. And help me now to live for you. Sold out. 100%. Totally for you. I hope you pray that prayer. And if you pray that prayer, yes, you will fall again. Yes, you will sin again. But you just keep running back to him. 
and you keep asking him to help you. And one day when the Lord shows up to take us home, or if by, for some reason, you end up leaving this earth, you will appear before the Lord and he will welcome you into his arms. Father, thank you. What a, what a gracious and loving God you are. Thank you, Father, for loving us so much that you would send your son to die on a cross for our sins. Father, I pray that that reason alone, for that reason alone, we would hate sin because what our sin costs you. And Father, give us the power because we can't do it on our own to turn away and be the people you want. Father, and we pray for revival. Father, bring revival and let it start with us. Thank you, Father. We love you. We thank you for Jesus and we pray all these things in his name. Amen.